Terror is one aspect of Australian history which brought madness to the fore from the first. Many who were sent to the colonies had also first been sentenced to die, and the prospect of execution visibly aged those who waited for it, and worse. Some killed themselves under the strain, and others went mad. When they arrived, convicts were met with the bloody sight of corpses rotting from swinging gibbets on the harbour. In the 1820s, following Commissioner Biggs' recommendations, the lash fell ever more heavily upon their backs. The acceptable number of strokes per flogging doubled to 100. A quarter of the male convicts were flogged each year. Pillories and treadmills were also introduced so that medieval torture blended with modern torture. Most weeks a man or woman was hanged. Around the settled areas, their semblance of British civilization, punctuated by pillories and scaffolds, were the chained labour gangs and penal settlements. The men, women and children sent to the colonies lived first under the threat of death and then in its shadow. Even if they avoided the worst of convict discipline, they still lived in the fickle grip of masters, overseers, magistrates and governors, while the empire worked its policies out. The empire sought and achieved terror. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Greg Dobbs. Today I'm talking to James Dunk about his new book, Bedlam at Botany Bay. James is an historian of medicine and colonialism and a research fellow in the Department of History at the University of Sydney. James, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thanks very much, Greg. James, I want to begin with the title of the book and in particular the use of the word bedlam because it has a double meaning. Why that word, and what does the title tell us about the book? Titles are one of the things that writers um, struggle with a lot, um, but they're also one of the things that publishers are wonderful at. So Bedlam at Botany Bay is um, the title that the uh, Philippa McGuinness at New South suggested for this book very early on after she first read my, my proposal, my early proposal. She suggested Bedlam at Botany Bay as this title which would efficiently, I think, efficiently capture... Um, a lot of what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do in this book, it's talking about, as you say, this double meaning of Bedlam. It's um, a reference to Bethlehem Asylum in London, the medieval institution which you know, had a really strong um, place in um, kind of cultural consciousness of uh, British society. And it still does a little bit, although I think we've often lost that formal association with the asylum itself. Now when we say Bedlam, we often think um, more of kind of this... Uh, chaos. It's often, you know, bedlam in the living room or the rumpus room. It's uh, toys everywhere or something like that. Or a kind of bedlam, uh, mad policy, disorder, chaos, disruption. Uh, so bedlam at Botany Bay is meant to capture these two things, really. Madness and chaos. Chaos in the policy of um, kind of the project of colonization. And a madness, a, a real, um, you know, at the root of it is mental illness but madness is a much more loose, fluid term around that. It can mean all of the things that are wrapped into it when we say someone is um, struggling with this kind of illness, and that's a polite way of saying it, 
back then they might have said someone's raving mad or someone is, is barking or a lunatic insane. And when academics come to these terms, they will always insist on using inverted commas, madness, insanity, lunacy in inverted commas. I'm doing inverted commas in the air now. And I understand that desire and I, I see that as a mark of respect often to people who are sufferers or consumers of mental health services. But when we come to write the history of uh, mental illness or madness, when we come to write this history, it seems actually that we shouldn't use words that people weren't using at the time. Then that can make its own problems and inconsistencies and incoherence. It's a bit like rewriting history. A little bit. It's, it's anachronistic. Um, but, but it's also inaccurate. I mean, it's not, we're not talking about mental illness in the way that we understand it today. We're talking about this phenomenon. Uh, it, at root, it's got a lot of um, crossover um, between what we understand now, the, the symptoms. But they didn't use those words, and they wouldn't have had the same thoughts and feelings quite as we do. Bedlam at Botany Bay is an unusual history book. Broadly speaking, it examines the psychological and physical challenges facing the colony of Sydney, but in extraordinary detail. What attracts you to this kind of research? I guess I find these stories entrancing and fascinating. The way I write about it in the book is that I think that madness disrupts. It's disruptive. It is chaotic. It's a sort of an inner disturbance, a failure to be clear in your innermost person, clear about who you are and, and how to do things and how you want to be in the world. And that disturbance can really spill out into the world. And that's when it becomes known as this phenomenon of, however we use the words, of lunacy or madness. And what attracts me to the story, I suppose, is these, these sorts of stories, is the, the strangeness of it, the way it cuts against the kind of rigid ordering of society, the bureaucracy these stories uh, are not easy to categorize, in, in a sense. I mean, that's kind of why I use the word madness, because they're not stories about depression or a particular symptom. They're stories where symptoms and diagnoses are kind of often scattered, often uh, piled on top of each other, sometimes never even used at all. There, there is no diagnosis. There's no formal talk of symptoms. And yet there is this inner disturbance. And everyone, lots of people at the time, recognized it talked about it, wrote about it. So that uh, I just think it's the most faithful way to write these history, actually, is um, to follow some of the details, which might get lost if we try to, try to talk in broader terms about structures of care, structures of knowledge around mental illness at this time. What were the sources for your research? I'm indebted to a lot of people who've done a lot of hard work to draw together some key sources in Australian history. So the colonial secretary's correspondence, a lot of letters essentially passing between the colonial secretary, the governor, authorities in London, and authorities in Sydney, kind of lesser government officials. Is that something that's easy to access in Sydney, or did you have to travel overseas to access those? Those are very easy to access, actually. Um, and they cover a lot of ground. I mean, one of the wonderful things about the colonial secretary's correspondence is it's not compartmentalised. It actually covers, you know, you might be reading about the asylum, the lunatic asylum at Castle Hill, and then you're quickly reading about political development, about um, the governor's fear of certain parties in the colony. You might be reading about dietary problems. There's all sorts of policy and people rolled into this correspondence because, I mean, that's not coincidental, it's because the colonial secretary and the governor are at the middle of this really quite centralised government. They, they control everything and they do it, a lot of it um, personally, making a lot of decisions themselves. Uh, there are also um, the record series, the historical records of New South Wales and the historical records of Australia. 
uh, and yeah, I mean, they they records that a lot of people have worked on to bring together and put into a really usable series. And so some key sources are there and, and wonderful documents are gathered there. They tend to be a bit old fashioned now. I mean, they, they we want to go further than those documents. And so I do go further. I, I use legal records um, because one of the key ways in which madness is kind of enters into the public realm is through uh, legal challenges, civil and criminal uh, trials in which there's been a crime and there's a suspicion of insanity, or there's a civil case to determine what to do with a person or an estate. The other source I use a lot are newspaper records. So you're probably familiar with Trove, the database that are run by the National Library of Australia. They've digitized just a whole lot of the early Australian papers, and it's a remarkable way of filling in lots of details that wouldn't have been available um, in in another time. So we're talking about the, is it the Sydney Gazette or the Gazette? That's right, the Gazette, a great paper that began publication in 1803 and um, has a lot of the government and the business of government, day-to-day things, ships coming in, all sorts of things like that. And then the Australian, I think, a little later on. The Australian, yes, from the 1820s. Yours is a study of madness outside the walls of the asylum, as you say. And it's as much about the madness of politics as, as it is about madness itself. Why is it important to research and write about this nexus between madness and politics? I think it's important because I think there is a really interesting nexus between madness and politics. I mean, at one level, the policies which determine a lot of the experience of people with mental illness, with madness, they're shaped by politics. And not only in you know specific, we might think of the kind of policies or party politics. It's not so much that as the political structures around uh, a society. So what's interesting about Botany Bay, that part of the title, the kind of penal colony of New South Wales in its first 70 years in Australia, is the very interesting and unusual political structures. It's a uh, what could be called a crown colony. So it doesn't have self-government. Uh, it has a very strong governor, a dictator figure, really, who has really quite immense powers um, the governor of New South Wales had more power in New South Wales than any monarch since the 17th century in England, which is, I mean, a remarkable force, a remarkable culture for a society, which is, interestingly, I mean, it's a penal colony, but it's not a prison. People talk or have spoken about it as an open jail, which is, I understand, you know, it's a bit of a jail, and yet it's a um, penal colony. It's a place where there are convicts, but there are also free people who are born, who arrive, and of course, uh, Aboriginal people who are there as well in the colony. Um, it's a really mixed place, but in that mixed place, you have a very strong centralized government. And those political structures determine how madness is responded to at a government level. The colony of New South Wales has been described as a large scale, ambitious public venture in criminal justice and as an object of terror to deter crime in Britain with the hope that it might instill some morality and industry into this Commonwealth of Thieves. And you say there is little effort to theorise the madness of the penal colony. To what degree was this simply a practical outcome of its objective as a penal colony? Or was this unsystematic approach simply an inheritance from Britain? I don't really think of the, um, the, the kind of thinking around madness as an inheritance from Britain at this time. In, in a way, there are parallel histories here. Because it's the early 1790s when there are key developments in the history of early psychiatry, um, the beginning of curative asylums in Europe. So we have the retreat at York and uh, the Bicetre in um, Paris. And all of them make these key developments towards something that we 
now know of as think of as moral therapy, um, an unusual title, but it really means psychological therapy. Um, so at the same time that the European project of colonizing New South Wales uh, goes ahead, so do these other developments in Britain. So there is a, a sort of a incoherence, and yet there's a lot of crossover between um, Britain and New South Wales. And the, people are coming and arriving and leaving all the time. There's a lot of mobility, actually. So the lack of theorization around uh, mental illness in New South Wales, I think it's more to do with the kind of society that was forming here, the priorities of the form. I mean, you say as a penal colony, and I think that's quite right. It's a, a colony which is preoccupied with convict discipline, with the um, uh, safe um, reception of convicts and discipline of them. And in a sense, the, um, the incorporation of former convicts into society. I mean, some convicts did return once they'd served out their sentences or returned beforehand once they escaped. But for the most part, convicts um, served out their sentences, were freed, and made lives in this kind of settler colonial state here. And in that settler colonial state, it turns out that madness wasn't the first object of government to work out what to do about the mental illness in the society. You speak of the settlement as being this rage for order. So I suppose, in a sense, that was the first priority, to create a sense of order in this unknown place. I think so, yeah. I mean, I think that you have a large land of unknown dimensions and character when when the Europeans first arrived. You have Aboriginal people of unknown intentions and motivations for these Europeans. And of course, it turns out, I mean, there wasn't really that much of a plan there wasn't a really long-term vision for the Europeans here. There was an objective, but not a plan. Sure, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Michael Rowe has written a book about the quest for authority as part of this kind of establishing of government over this place. And absolutely, I think that order shines through in these kind of efforts to deal with madness. The instructive episode in the book is the um, treatment of Jonathan Burke McHugo, who turns up in uh, Van Diemen's land claiming to be a royal and also claiming to be a kind of commissioner who's empowered to audit the armies of the empire. And what's what's amazing about this is that he turns up as a merchant making these claims and the commandant, Major Gordon, um, accepts them at face value, hands over his authority to Jonathan Burke McHugo, um, who must have been a charismatic and very interesting character, really. Um, he hands over his power, and if there wasn't the intervention of these junior officers who you know, identified a sort of a madness in Jonathan Burke McHugo and had him sent on his ship up to Sydney, and where he tr- was treated and so forth. But the way that Lachlan Macquarie, who's the governor in Sydney, responds to this episode is with some real anxiety, I think, that at the edge of his authority as a governor with power over this vast land, um, someone can turn up in a ship and, and take over a settlement based on his force of character in the, in the end. These days we speak of trauma often as a precondition or even a precursor to mental illness. Bedlam at Botany Bay is a detailed analysis of Australian colonial trauma. And some of the conditions that brought about the responses to trauma are rather obvious, like the tyranny of distance, as we call it, separation from family, climate, unknown quantities of the environment, heat, drought, dangerous and sometimes even deadly wildlife. And Governor Darling is recorded as saying, if there is nothing in the climate which induces colonists' absolute derangement, there is undoubtedly something peculiar which affects the spirits and produces extraordinary depression. 
How did the responses to trauma manifest themselves in the colony of Botany Bay? We always have this trouble when we look back at mental symptoms and conditions and try and engage in the, the diagnosis of doctors at the time or, or governors even, a governor saying there's something which is producing derangement or there's something which is producing depression. And yet, I think we need to trust, um, in a sense, trust that they had some insight into the, the phenomena they're describing. Governor Darling has this um, problem on his hands that, that that quote is referring to, which is that he's trying to fill a spot on the council after someone has committed suicide. Charles Throsby, a surgeon with some wealth, a propertied man, who became responsible for a loan. He was the security on a loan of a man who is a, not a terribly responsible person at all, who'd fled the colony, leaving 10,000 pounds of debt. And 10 years later, Charles Throsby became responsible for that. And there's some indication that that was the, you know, the presenting cause. You know, that was his particular kind of trauma, was this massive debt that he couldn't possibly pay. Uh, there's also at the time a, a, a drought uh, something we, uh, you know, we're very familiar with in Australian history. It was a, quite a new phenomenon back then, I suppose. Well, they were becoming more and more aware of drought as a, you know, returning visitor, an unwelcome visitor. And as a, a colony that was, well, fairly well short of provisions, I mean, a lot of food was still coming by ship from England, as I understand, so uh, it wasn't uh, an uncommon thing, and people, you know, were close to starvation. This is very early years, yes, they were. Um, particularly those first few years, they were really very desperate. Um, they felt that they'd been abandoned, they felt that no ships were going to come over the horizon, and they didn't come for a long time. The English became preoccupied with other matters, of course, in these years, um, and uh, the, uh, the, there was a drought in those first, first few years. And the uh, English were expecting um, the kind of verdant lands that Joseph Banks and uh, James Cook had talked of, what they found is a landscape that was much drier and much more difficult to produce crops in. And so their first crops failed, their um, stores began to run out, and they became, yeah, really desperate. They lowered their rations again and again. And the interesting thing about Arthur Philip and his leadership is that he reduced his own rations. He didn't make convicts and soldiers suffer without joining them in that. Of course, um, alcoholism played a strong part too. We speak of the Rum Rebellion. But in fact, it wasn't really just about rum, was it? No, it's a, it's a shorthand. I'm not exactly sure how that shorthand became popular, actually. I mean, it's, it works. I mean, it's a particularly nice Australian phrase, a rum rebellion, a rebellion about spirituous liquor. But no, it was about uh, property. It was about liberty. It was about different views of what the society should be about here. The governor and his officers were engaged in receiving convicts, in securing um, the order of society. And the settlers were, for the most part, engaged in making money. And uh, the Rum Rebellion is where those interests clashed, uh, and where John MacArthur and several other key officers of the New South Wales Corps and settlers took it upon themselves to um, teach or school William Bly and the British Empire in the colony of New South Wales and what it was for and what it should be doing. John MacArthur, the so-called father of the Australian wool industry, in fact, he was quite ill for a long time, and the picture you paint of him has the ring of dementia about it. Look, John MacArthur is a fascinating figure, no matter how you look at him or where you stand, whether you're a fan or, or not a fan of MacArthur. I mean, he's a, he's a character, right? He's got a lot of charisma. He's a very intelligent man. 
apparently quite aggressive too. Extremely aggressive in my reading of him. That, that's how he comes across in all the sources. Is um, he was a bully actually from the start. A bully. He was a uh, a charismatic man who used his people skills to achieve what he wanted to further his own interests. And in a lot of ways, he's a great Australian story in the sense that he made himself almost out of nothing. He, and we should say also his wife, who played a key role in promoting his, the family's interests, building up the farms, especially while MacArthur was away in England for eight years at a stretch uh, around the rebellion, after the rebellion. He suffered from gout, I think, in his early years. And I think there's some belief that that may have led to a degree to his ill health in later years mm. and perhaps precipitated some of the uh, mental health problems that he had later on too it's possible that gout had something to do with it um certainly on the the joint journey out he and elizabeth were coming out to new south wales in i think it was 1792 perhaps and he was struck down with some sort of fever uh, he was there was talk of lumbago the way the macarthur's understood it was that that was the beginning of his mental uh, symptoms a sort of an anxiety or depression um, different uh, symptoms that stayed with him in different ways throughout his life. They often talked about it. I don't get the impression that it was public knowledge, that this certainly the extremes of his anxiety or depression would have been known by most of the people around him. Certainly the aggression they would have known about. And yeah, what I try and do in one of, one of the chapters in the book is to trace the ways that something like the Rum Rebellion, this kind of coup uh, where there was quite a lot of disorder and where particularly men like MacArthur and Edward Abbott, Nicholas Bailey, and some of the other settlers and officers set themselves up against the empire. And how that, and the, the way that that played out, um, how that might have affected them in, in their inner parts, their, their interiors, a sort of psychological history of a rebellion. And so MacArthur was sick for most of his adult life, it seems. And yet, uh, it seems that after the rebellion, you can see the way that that was traced out or played out in his mind and in his person through the uh, increased aggression in, in different ways, through his disappointment in how he was kind of pushed out of public life following the rebellion and following that exile in London, which he didn't choose. He stayed away from New South Wales because he wasn't sure what would happen when he came back. There was a fear of arrest, I think, wasn't there? A fear of arrest. He could have been charged with treason and executed, in fact. In this period of, well, a lack of self-government, and that was quite a problem for the free settlers. And in the late 1820s, there was a spate of suicides, uh, including Charles Throsby, but also George Galway Mills, who was a registrar of the Supreme Court. And this seems to have brought a particular issue to a head. And I wanted to ask you, were the pressures brought by the government responsible for that, or is it a little more complex than that? Well, certainly that's what some of the journalists and the liberal opponents of Ralph Darling and his government, certainly that was their view. There was a, um, an article, uh, editorial I suppose, um, suggesting that these suicides were the response, direct response to um, government policy. The policy in question was uh, you know, sort of a, a colony-wide purge, an effort to increase the moral standards of New South Wales society, and particularly in its levels and the echelons of government. Ralph Darling was unashamedly going about trying to eject from his administration people who he thought were kind of opponents of government. And so, he, I mean, he had an interest in only having moral, upstanding people, of, often of money, uh, migrate to the colony. But he also extended that into how he thought that people should be governing the colony and who he thought should be governing and administrating the colony. The Sydney Gazette was very pro 
That's the, right. The standing government, wasn't it? The Gazette was essentially the mouthpiece of government in the early years. And it was censored, in fact, by the colonial secretary. It didn't go to press until it had um, been checked by the government. That was relaxed in the 1820s. And yet the Australian and soon the Monitor, uh, edited by Edward Hall, they uh, were the, the mouthpieces of uh, colonists who wanted to govern themselves. They wanted trial by jury. They wanted a free press. They wanted to govern themselves by elected representatives. All fairly reasonable by today's standards, but of course not the way that the colony began. And so they were unashamedly pushing those political causes. And in a way, it, it, I mean, these publications took up this claim about suicide. They were saying that the purge, which is in a sense a kind of a terror, uh, it's a one way of darling interpreting the terror that was there from the start in a way in New South Wales. That terror was one of the strands constituting New South Wales. There was also, of course, a, a sense of asylum or a freedom or second chance, which certain people like Arthur Phillip, Lachlan Macquarie and others firmly believed in, I think. They wanted to make New South Wales a place where some of the poor and wretched of um, England and Ireland and Scotland could start afresh. But terror was key. And one of the interesting things we see, I think, is the way that that object of terror filtered through or spread throughout society in New South Wales to become an object of more general terror. It wasn't just to criminals or prospective criminals, however that might be expected to have worked, but a, uh, a mode of government, a, a right of a, a culture of terror, which spread out from England through these processes. As to whether the this culture of terror produced these suicides, it's always very difficult to say with any certainty. And I don't think I'd like to try and say with certainty if this is exactly what happened. Still, I think that for some of the people on the ground, they make the case, it's a compelling case, that these men, before they killed themselves, felt very keenly that purge. They had anxiety, they had terror, a fear. Certainly Mills, George Galway Mills, it was very clear that he had this specific anxiety about the, the role of government in his life and his own personal future. As a final question to you, James, mental health is part of an ongoing discussion in this century and sometimes proves contentious for present-day governments and their role in providing funding and services. Can we learn anything from this history? I think we have plenty to learn from this early period in the history of mental illness in early Australian settler history. I think what's interesting about this time that we're looking at in this book is that it's a pre-asylum, a pre-psychiatric hospital period. The first 50 years are essentially without an asylum or a hospital. And in the last few decades, we've shut down a lot of our residential mental facilities. And so in a sense, we've kind of come full circle back to this time in which we have to work out again how to deal with people who are, um, our institutions are not uh, catering to them. Of course, there were good reasons for that. And I'm not trying to walk back those reforms. I think some of them were very you know, wise decisions. And yet we've got this void, a policy void that we had at the start this is the way I, I talk about it as a kind of a lack of structure, a lack of direction or program, no particular plan for what to do with people who became mentally ill. And we have a similar, I think we have a similar situation in which the prisons, funnily enough, as a, you know, a country with this penal history, the prisons are uh, picking up a lot of this kind of mental health service provision. And I shouldn't say it's funny. There's nothing funny about this. I mean, it's often a very tragic the ways that mental illness and criminality, whilst not the same thing, are dealt with together by our state, by our services, or not dealt with at all and abandoned and neglected. 
some of the most vulnerable people in our society. James Dunk, thanks for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank you very much for the talk. I appreciate it. I've been talking to James Dunk about his book Bedlam at Botany Bay. It's published by New South Books and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name is Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.